okay? Large. Today, we see the funneling down. We see it narrowing down to submitting to earthly masters. And then next week, or next time that we meet, so two weeks from now, it funnels down even more. You'll see at the beginning of chapter 3 in 1 Peter, between the, the, the wife and the husband. Okay? So we have this funneling down doctrine of submission from government to earthly masters, the workplace, to the home. Okay? Um, so with this command, who is it to? We see that it is to servants. Right there in our very first word. This word servants is oiketes, which is the Greek word for house in Greek is oike. Oiketes. So this is a household slave. One who is under the, the lord of the manor, the king of the castle, the keeper of the farm, the owner of the business. Servant here is a domestic, milder expression, as we heard last week, of doulos. Doulos, slave, such as in Ephesians 6.5 and Colossians 3.22. So this term really brings forward the, the household relation of servant to master, employee to employer concept, and, and not just the fact of ownership. But, but all this to say, servants in those days generally were, were slaves. And, and if you were a Christian in the first century, most of you were and would have been in this context. Okay? Um, servants in those days were generally slaves. They had heathen masters who often used them cruelly. Yet the apostle here in our text this morning directs them to be subject to the masters placed over them by providence. By providence. And so here is our verb in our text this morning and the command, submit. Servants, be submissive. This word submit is a military term meaning, and I think that's on your notes, yep, it's a military term meaning to arrange in a military fashion under the command of a leader. And in non-military use, it was a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. So in the Greek here, we have hupo, under, teso, to arrange, to appoint. You, the believer, are to be hupotesoing. <laughs> you are to be appointing, arranging yourself under with, with the attitude of honor and obedience and submission. And, and herein is the command. Be submissive to your masters with all respect or fear. That is, reverence for their position of authority. But more so, a fear of dishonoring or offending God. That's really the point. Colossians 3.22, slaves, in all things, obey your masters on earth, not with external service as merely pleasing men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. In all things, this is our attitude, this is our demeanor, this is our composure. Ephesians 6.5, slaves, be obedient to your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of your heart as to Christ, 
Not by way of eye service as man-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God. You want to do the will of God? Submit. And the text in Ephesians just said, in all things. Now, we're not going to get down into the the nitty-gritty, and I'm not going to go on to meddling, I don't think, um, regarding all of the specifics that this would include. Each one of your occupations and your your life has different contexts. But this is to be the attitude of the believer's heart. So we this morning stop and say, okay, cool, I I think I I can do that. I can can love the Lord, especially since I'm not living in the Greco-Roman world where I'm not owned by any master. And, And Nero isn't nearby burning Christians and... Uh, their homes to the ground. My, my social structure with work and employee to employer life is, is fine so long as my boss is good, fair, gentle towards me. I can and do give reasonable service, I think. But Peter says, be submissive not only to those good and gentle, but to your unreasonable masters. (laughs) This word unreasonable is crooked, bent. It's it's the word uh, scolios in Greek, which is where we get the word scoliosis. That's right. A warped nature. Those who are severe in their commands and expectations. That doesn't make sense. It's not lining up straight and right. They are unreasonably exacting in what they ask of you and even angry without cause. Any of us had a a boss or an employer like this? Um, There's so many illustrations in church history that we could give (laughs) of this. Um, But just briefly for myself... um, I used to work at a golf course, and uh, I loved it. I, I enjoyed working at the golf course. Uh, but my boss uh, was, was, in my opinion, quite a little too exacting in what he expected of me uh, to do. Um, I washed the balls. I, I drove the golf cart out there to retrieve the balls. I would, I would wash the golf carts and take care of different odds and ends. And I enjoyed doing that until, until one day when the ball washing machine broke. And these ball washing machines are pretty cool. They, uh, you, you dump a thousand golf balls in and you have a thousand shiny, squeaky, dry, clean golf balls in about 10 minutes. Done, clean, ready to go. It broke. You know what my boss told me to do? That's correct. Wash them by hand. I think it was about two-ish hours until they were done. Now, don't talk to me about the the condition of my heart at that moment because, um, and even the, 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 was that a job well done? You know how many balls I probably just went, and I didn't do it unto his glory. I didn't do it as though the king was watching me. Now, was my boss asking me to sin? Absolutely not. 
But it seemed unreasonable. It seemed a little crooked, a little bent. I was like, oh, come on, give me a little grace here. Well, then I think it was about a week or two later, after that time passed, um, you have to wash all 100 golf carts by the end of the day as the golfers are bringing them in, right? And um, have a good power washer and good cloths and all of that. Uh, but it was a Friday. And so you had scrambles that day. You had tournaments that day. It was busy. So therefore, every single cart was used. Okay, all 100 golf carts were used. <laughs> and you normally work with three people on a Friday, well, those two, my two sidekicks that were supposed to work with me on that Friday were not there. I don't know if they, were, if they were sick or out of town, whatever it was, they were not there. So what did my boss tell me to do? Wash all of them yourself. Boss, can you just join me, join me a little bit? Just do a couple. Help me out. And by the way, he, he's a golf pro. He's been in the PGA. He's, he's high up there, Okay. Uh, he, he couldn't. He, he was busy. And I'm not sure if he would have helped me anyway. Um, so I was there till about midnight 30 that night, when normally I'm home by about 9.30, 10 o'clock-ish or so. They had good spotlights. It was good lighting, so I could see what I was doing. Thank you, Lord, for that. Mm, really glad. I wish there was no lighting so I didn't have to wash the carts. <laughs> All of these sorts of things went on. He, 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 he had a foul mouth towards me as well. But in regards to unjust suffering, or really any suffering for that matter, even if we're just sick, I mean, how do you respond when you're sick, right, to the Lord? <laughs> we won't have a moment of confession here this morning. But think of just even when you're sick, like, oh, this is unfair, Lord. I've got to do this and this today and this week. Oh, come on. What's our attitude, even in our sickness? But context of our passage, suffering does not change the rules of the ballgame of the Christian life. Suffering does not give us permission to do things that God has not called us to do, whether it's in thought, deed, or word. So we have our commands. Sub servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. But why, Lord? Why? That brings us to the reason in verses 19 and 20. Here's the reason. For this finds favor or grace if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. So, why obey the command to submit to unreasonable masters? Are you ready for this? Because this is grace. <laughs> because this is grace. It, it, it is the grace of God, and... It is grace towards the ungodly, which we'll see more so in a minute. It is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are being conscious of God, mindful of him whom they really serve. Think of it. When you are bearing up under unfair, unkind treatment, when you choose not to argue with them, but to submit Titus 2, 9 to 10 says, you are, I love this phrase, adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. 
adorning the doctrine of God, our Savior. I have to ask myself that every day, right? Whether it's golf course or the deli that I used to, used to work at, to this very day, am I adorning the doctrine of God in what I do with my work towards my earthly masters? Okay? And some of you might say, oh, it's easy because you have Pastor Dusty as your boss. <laughs> in a sense, yes, but you don't work with him. Just kidding, that's a joke. <laughs> is that being recorded? <laughs> okay. It is uh, such a joy. But that doesn't mean I don't have my weak moments where I think, oh, that can't, oh, that's not, nope. I'm the problem. <laughs> it, Dusty walked by the, my desk the other day and he said, have lunch with your, your favorite boss at, at 1230. And I, and, and I came back to my desk and I, and I saw it and I, and I shot it. I said, my boss is Jesus. And he said, Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it kind of worked out that way. But how are you doing in adorning the doctrine of God, your Savior, when it comes to submitting to your earthly masters, those authorities that are over you, if it's for two hours or it's all day at work or all week? Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.1, we are to regard them as worthy of all honor. And notice, he doesn't put a qualifier on that, okay? All earthly masters, as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Wow. I have to throw Spurgeon in here. He says, a sense of injustice stings a man. Yes, it does. (laughs) He does not like to lose his rights or to be bruised when he has done no ill. But the Spirit of Christ teaches us to endure grief, suffering wrongfully, to bear still and still to bear. (laughs) We are to be like an anvil. Let others strike us if they will, but we shall wear out the hammers (laughs) if we only know how to stand still and bear all that is put upon us. He says it so well. Peter then looks, he looks out for the believer's testimony in the midst of all this, and he he says in verse 20, for what credit, and really the word here is, it's, it's kleos in the Greek, which is, uh, it's, the, it's the glory of a good report, okay? For what credit, what glory is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? So what glory is there in that? There's no glory because the unbelieving world does this. How they respond and they treat those that are in authority over them, their, their, their bosses, their employers. What glory is there in that? None. Greek heroes, Greek warriors, would, in the first century, earn the, the credit, the glory, the, the kleos, through accomplishing great deeds and enduring the hardships and wounds of the battle. Now, who doesn't love the glory of a good report, right? Or a good word said about you? All of us, right? <laughs> but there is no glory of enduring ill treatment if... In the midst of it, you are sinning against your harsh, unreasonable boss. 
right? Rather, instead, the opposite's happening. The name of God is dishonored, and Christianity, according to 1 Timothy 6.1, is reviled. It is reviled. But Peter says, if when you do what is right and suffer for it and patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Why? Why? And I just want to put one text out here for us as to answering why. There are many, but here's one big one that I think we're familiar with. If when you do what is right and suffer for it patiently and endure it, this finds favor with God. Why? Because it's a testimony to the unbelieving world of our master's grace and kindness. It is his grace and kindness in the flesh. Titus 3, 1 to 4 says it. Remind them, the church, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also, <laughs> this, is, this is what's to grip us here, okay? For we, the believer, the Christian, we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, and it goes on explaining how he saved us, how he regenerated us, all his doing. And what's the the point here? That huge pivotal shift here in the text, but when the kindness of God and his love for mankind appeared. (gasps) In other words, in this text, we are to be showing the grace and kindness of God towards the harsh and unbelieving earthly masters that we have to them. We're to be showing it to them. And how, how does that look? Well, we just read it in our text. If when you're doing what is right, if you're proclaiming the gospel in those right appropriate times, if you're doing what is right at work and you suffer for it, but patiently endure it, and that's an attitude of the heart, this finds favor with God. This finds grace with God. We're talking about grace here. And when we do what is right and suffer for it and patiently endure it, I love how Spurgeon puts it. He he summarizes Titus 3. He says, it is a distinguishing effect of his grace. A distinguishing effect of his grace. Just like Drew pointed out last week, the world peers in and sees this and they go, what? What? (laughs) And then you have that further opportunity of proclaiming the gospel to them. Oh, you mean the gospel changes you? (laughs) Gives you a new nature? And this is a reflection of Jesus Christ? Precisely. Precisely. And a side note, God does not receive glory through people being abused. Okay? But he does find pleasure in people who are always mindful of him no matter their trials. No matter the trials. And that's going to point us to verse 24, but we'll get there in a moment. So this... this, this, unjust suffering and treatment which finds favor with God, it is a gracious thing 
to suffer unjustly because God uses those moments to also change us, right? To change us, to sanctify us further until glory. God sharpens us and shapes us through unjust suffering. You're making that up, Chris. Where is that in the text? Okay, here's just one. 1 Peter 5.10 says, God, through the suffering, the unjust suffering, he perfects, confirms, strengthens, and establishes you. I'd say if that's what's happening, then I'd say that is the most gracious thing. (laughs) No wonder it finds favor with God. Because this is one of his tools, his methods, according to his grace, according to his kindness. Oh, and by the way, we're going to be rewarded. (laughs) Matthew 5.10 says, we're going to be rewarded at the same time for unjust treatment. So, we see the command. The command is clear. Submit to those unfair and fair with respect while doing good. The reason? It finds favor with God. It pleases him. And according to 1 Peter 3.17, it is his will that we live in such a manner. And so this, this bleeds right into our next point, number two, the call in verse 21, the first part, the call. For you have been called for this purpose. Whoa! Now, this text is either getting easier for you to receive or it's getting harder, okay? For you have been called for this purpose. Now, this word call is kaleo, which means to cry aloud, to summon loudly. It is the very same word which John uses when Jesus calls Lazarus, come forth. Come forth. When, when, when Jesus said that, what happened? When he said, Lazarus, come forth, what happened? Yeah, Lazarus came forth. <laughs> he rose up from the dead. Some people have said he had to specifically say Lazarus because if he just said, come forth, all the dead would have risen. But this word call is the call of salvation such as in Romans 8, 28, as we are called the called. It is the called, an effectual calling. This isn't a telephone by Jesus saying, hey, would you pick up? You know, I have something really good to offer you. No, this is an effectual, sovereign call of God. Same word in Romans 8, 28. So this call in context is for what purpose? You have been saved, in other words, for what purpose? To have your best life now? To make sure that every day is a Friday for you? To make sure that you have health, wealth, and prosperity? To make sure that you are happy? No. No, just real quickly, side note. Your best life is not now. This is your worst life now, okay? And it's amazing how joyous and gracious and merciful God is to us even in our worst life now. So, for this purpose you have been called, what purpose? 
I think we're, I think we're getting the hang of it here, to endure unjust suffering patiently. Called, called to suffer wrongfully. We'll, we'll all make shirts for that. How about that? Called on the front and on the back to suffer wrongfully. <laughs> I don't think that would sell very well. But we got to go to the reason, further reasoning. The, the reasons just keep building and stacking up in this passage. I don't know if you see it or not, but look at the reason. Moving forward to verse 21, 21b, the last half, to 23. Since Christ also suffered for you, <laughs> leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. <laughs> <clears throat> This word example, hupo gramos, um, hupo, again, meaning under, um, gramos is really where, where we get the word grammar from, but it literally means an underwriting. So uh, as you would trace one paper on top of another, you would trace the following of the outline. He is our example, our hupo gramos. In other words, we have been saved to trace the pattern of our lives after Christ. He is our schematic off of which we operate. He is the, as Pastor Dusty has explained in recent weeks, he is the, he has pioneered the trail for us to follow in his tracks. So what kind of footsteps, what kind of tracks, what kind of precise path are we talking about to which the Christian is called to stand firm in? What is that? What does it look like? Well, Peter here pauses. And he now breaks open Isaiah 53, which is on the suffering servant. And he lays out the footsteps of the blameless one who perfectly modeled endurance in suffering unjustly. So here is Christ, our perfect example, verses 22 to 23. Follow along. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. (laughs) With a passage like this before us regarding our sinless Savior's earthly life, his agony at Gethsemane, and his unjust suffering prior to Calvary, we need to just ponder the enormity and magnitude of it all. Keeping in mind also, we're not even talking yet about the full wrath of God, even what was explained here in verses 22 and 23. So with this passage, with verses 22 to 23 in mind here, Paul, he did this. He didn't revile in return. He committed no sin, no deceit in his mouth didn't revile, uttered no threats even, kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. We need to read just one, I was like, which passage am I going to use for this? (laughs) For all of this detailed description. Here's just one short passage. Mark 15, 13 to 20. I encourage you to open your Bibles to Mark 15, verses 13 to 20, in understanding this unjust treatment which he received and yet did not revile in return. When we say all the time, man, he could have done this, or as the scriptures say, he could have called down legions of angels. 
Just real quickly. Mark 15, 13 to 20, they shouted back, crucify him. Okay, we know today is Palm Sunday, right? In which the kickstart is the people are in the street shouting what? Hosanna, Lord, in the highest, save. Don't save us from our sin, just save us from Rome, but save us. And then we'll see the very next crowd, the very next week, shouting this. They shouted back, crucify him, verse 14. But Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Intent on satisfying the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas. Barabbas. If, if, you would, if, if there's one person you'd say, if you, in the technical, literal sense, who did Jesus die for? Barabbas. <laughs> because he literally took his place. I think we all need t-shirts that's, that with, with, with our name on it would be Barabbas, because this is us. Pilate released, released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus, the word here is flogged or scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Flogging or the, the flagellum was the, the instrument that was used, intended for criminal punishment. This was a methodical beating and whipping and lashing of the flesh. It is where we get the cat of nine tails, the cat of nine tails being whipped around. It's small spiked metal balls with pieces of bone and glass cemented to it, sometimes even having a microscopic leather thread tips so as to do the much intricate damage. It was the most cruel and inhumane treatment during this period. And so we go further in our passage in verse 16, Mark 15, 16. Now the soldiers took him away into the palace. This is after the flogging. That is the praetorium. And they called together the Roman, the whole Roman cohort. That could be up to 600 men. So sometimes if you see it in movies, you see just a couple of the Roman soldiers around. No, this was a group that was five times larger than what is here today. Verse 17, and they dressed him in purple after the scourging, okay, after the tearing of the flesh, all across the naked body being held to that wooden beam, after pieces of muscle and bone have been torn out, They dressed him in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, to put it lightly, they put it on him, and they began saluting him, mocking him, Hail, King of the Jews, verse 19. And they repeatedly beat his head with a reed and spit upon him. And kneeling, they bowed down before him. And after they had mocked him, they took the purple cloak off him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, 
And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, with all this being just briefly noted about our Savior's suffering, in the context of this passage, what is the call? The call is the Christian's Christian's submission to earthly masters who are harsh. (laughs) And the reason? Jesus has left an example that we should follow in his footsteps. Hebrews 12.3, consider him, oh, consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Peter then placards the pinnacle of unjust suffering at the cross in our next section. He brings us then to the ultimate height of unjust suffering as this text begins to build and continues on in number three, the cross, verse 24. First part, who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. We see here that Christ's death was designed not only for an example of patience under sufferings, but those sufferings are actually intertwined, commingled with the bearing of our sins. In other words, he is our substitute. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. What? On our behalf, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Isaiah 53, 4-5. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him smitten, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed. For our iniquities, the chastening for our peace, our well-being that we experience even here this morning, fell upon him. <laughs> there is a long-standing argument about histori- from historians as to whether or not it was the Jews or the Romans who really nailed Jesus to the tree. If we want to settle that technically on the surface level, it was both, right? It was both the Jews and the Romans. But if we want to settle it according to the scriptures as we just read, it was us. It was us. Just as Martin Luther has well-crafted it, as he said, we all walk around carrying the nails of the cross in our pockets. And as C.J. Mahaney has rightly said, reach into your pockets. And there they are. And in that, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Remember Deuteronomy 21, 23. And Paul quotes it in Galatians 3, 13. Cursed of God is everyone who is hanged on a tree. (laughs) He became 
a curse for you, for me. And in so doing, because he is the Holy Lamb of God, he not only suffered the wrath of God, praise the Lord, he satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. We should be the most joyful human beings on the face of this planet because of this. He satisfied divine justice that was due us, which means the cup of God's wrath that we should have fully drank, Christ drank, thereby taking away sin's punishment, which we deserved. Isn't that amazing? We get to drink the cup of blessing. He drank the curse of God. Listen, we are we, we far more than John the Baptist ought to daily cry out in constant thanksgiving, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know how one a janitor custodian got saved by just that one sentence? In the, in the tabernacle, which, which Charles Haddon Spurgeon uh, Preached. He would often come in early, early, early in the morning to practice his sermons. And he was practicing. <laughs> and he was on this text in John chapter 1. And as he was practicing, he came across and he belted out as Spurgeon would have with no microphones but decent acoustics. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. History has it that that custodian came to Spurgeon before the the sermon even began that morning and told him that he was born again from that truth. How does it settle with us? In his afflicted, torn, dying body on a tree where murderous, adulterous, thieving criminals justly would hang, He bore our sins in his body on the tree. How does that settle with us this morning? We got got to get to the reason also. Let's, Let's keep going. In the middle of verse 24 to 25, we see the reason. So that, remember, underline in your Bibles, everywhere you see the so that's, you got to mark it. What comes out of this? Okay, then what? What now? So that, as the scripture says, die to sin. So that we might die to sin. Colossians 3.3, Romans 6.2, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. How can we who died still live in it? Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Being dead to sin, namely in this context, the sin of not submitting to your earthly masters. (laughs) All sin, yes. But really, in the main streamline of the context of our passage, the sin of not submitting to our earthly masters both in heart and in action and in word, from government to the workplace to the home, so that we might die to sin, die to that, and live to righteousness. Live to righteousness by standing firm in unjust suffering. 
That's how you live to righteousness in this passage. You want to live to righteousness? You live to righteousness by standing firm in unjust suffering. See how our Lord was treated and how he respond and do likewise. See that by his wounds, by his stripes, the diseases of our souls are cured. Submit in light of the gospel. Walk in gospel light. The Christian strives to live unto righteousness. That is, to live unto the standard and example of Christ in all moralities of life, but specifically the righteousness of enduring suffering patiently so that the likeness of Christ might shine forth through you and I as it did the prophets and the apostles. So what's our motivation for crucifying sin and putting on the righteous robes of Christ daily? Here's the bookend motivation of verse 24, okay? By his wounds, you were healed. (laughs) By his wounds, you were healed. Now, the wounds that we might receive from our earthly masters, it's not as though we heal them, right? We can't heal them. But we can be Christ towards them, and they see that. And God is the one who does the saving, So think of it, by his wounds you were healed. By his wounds, by his stripes, you were delivered from sin's guilt and power. Not quite the presence of it, but the guilt and power of it. And so Peter further reminds the scattered, persecuted church in Rome of their redemption story here in verse 25. Here is the conversion. Here's their conversion. For you were continually straying like sheep. For you were continually straying like sheep. Just like your earthly masters, okay? (laughs) You were continually straying like sheep. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Listen to what he says in Ezekiel 34, 6. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to seek, to search or seek after. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered. Ezekiel 34. All of us like sheep have gone astray, turned our own way. This, this is the state of wandering, of roaming about, but not roaming about aimlessly. It's wandering and roaming about in error, in deception, in sin, you know, that hell-bound road that you were on, that I was on. We were once sheep led by sin, right? That cruel taskmaster called sin, (laughs) drinking from the fountain of sin, swimming in it, choosing it, being controlled by its deceitfulness. But now we are led by the Spirit, Romans 8, drinking from the water of life now, not roaming about in deception, but in pursuing righteousness. 
now on our heaven-bound road because we have been saved, rescued by the sovereign kindness and grace of the good shepherd. And therefore, because of such a rescue, what does the text say? But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Have returned. This is the word repented. Turn away from and turned toward, literally, the pastor of your soul. (laughs) The pastor of your soul. The shepherd, the overseer of your souls. When you once were continually straying, exposed to dangers without number, when once you followed in the devil's tracks and were held captive to the prince of darkness, the father of lies, the bad shepherd, and sometimes after being even converted and born again, we may still stray, but not without understanding, not without a hatred of straying, because we now have a new nature, having been born again, and we know the kind, gracious shepherd of our souls. For example, Paul hating even the brevity of straying in Romans chapter 7. Or Psalm 119, 176, the very last verse of Psalm 119, the psalmist says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. And then what does he say after that? Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. That's what the believer says. The believer knows he or she, we, we stray sometimes. But at the end, he says, seek your servant, for I do not forget your word. I know you. I love you. I'm yours. Or even Peter, ugh, speaking to his shepherd in John 21, 17, where he said, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, Okay, continue on your Christian life, then feed my sheep. <laughs> Aren't you glad that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep? Hebrews 13, 20. He hears the bleating of the sheep. Don't worry, I'm not going to bleat for you. And on the flip side, John 10. <laughs> my sheep hear my voice and they come. They come. And because of this truth of sovereign grace, verse 25 says, because of the sovereign grace of that truth, that we hear his voice, that he's called us, that he saved us, what does the end of verse 25 say? It says, now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. In light of the Christian's submission to earthly masters, cruel or kind, and in light of Christ's example of perfect submission and suffering unjustly, and in light of the gospel bubble, which encapsulates our text this morning, how do we respond? How do we respond? Number one, give thanks for your heavenly master. Give thanks for your heavenly master. Think of it the one and only master of the universe. Christ Jesus, our Lord, is good, merciful, and kind. And as you're giving thanks to him, even if you happen to be a boss, an employer, remember Colossians 4.1. Masters, show your slaves what is right and fair, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Give thanks 
for your heavenly master. Number two, as we've seen, display God's grace. When's the last time in a moment of difficulty you immediately said to yourself, huh, this is grace and an opportunity to show grace. (laughs) When's the last time? Because this finds favor with God when you bear up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, verse 19 says, right? Experiences of injustice under our earthly masters equals an opportunity to display God's grace to the lost. (laughs) Display God's grace. And number three, pray for salvation. Your boss, your employer, those who have one hour of authority over, over your life or many months and years in that context, in that setting. 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 3, Paul says, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of some men, all men, for kings and for all who are in authority, and that we, why? So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see the combination there of displaying God's grace and prayer for their salvation? It says display his grace. Pray for their salvation. Because that is God's desire that they be saved. Remember the, the, my boss that I mentioned to you earlier, the, the PGA golf pro that I used to, to work for at the golf course. Uh, his name is Scott Hathaway. Um, he was a cruel, um, un- too exacting, I thought, boss. Many cruel things said in passing. Many things that, man, no one should have to do this kind of thing at work. I wish I could say that I was the one who was the one displaying God's grace to him and praying for him. I was 17 at the time. Uh, I wasn't. I was just trying to endure it, get through it. But my dad started to come and play on that golf course. And he would often hit a bucket of balls off of the range. And Scott Hathaway, the, my cruel boss, would come by from time to time, and my father wouldn't say anything of the reports that I would give to him. of Dad, man, he talks this way, and he makes me do this. But he was just an example of the grace of God to him. And he came, my dad would come, even with me, to hit a bucket of balls for months and months. And it was about six months down the road that I discovered that Scott Hathaway was having a Bible study in the pro shop every morning. Before work, before he opened the shop. And it wasn't a month after he started doing that that the shareholders 
who had their foot in the ground on that course in and around and had their part of ownership persecuted Scott Hathaway for having his Bible studies in the pro shop and kicked him out. He was no longer the pro and the boss at that shop anymore. I hear about a month, uh, it was about a year after that, my dad got a, got a phone call that he and his family moved to Gilroy, California, and he's now an Awana leader at a sound teaching church in Gilroy. Spurgeon says, since you have been brought back by the rich grace of God, continue to bear and forbear that you may be the means of bringing others back. This is Peter's counsel to the scattered, persecuted churches in the first century, and it's also God's instruction to Northlake Bible Church here this morning, April 10th, 2022. Let's pray. Lord, we celebrate the glory of your transforming grace when it comes to us being in the the vehicle of, of suffering, knowing that you died and suffered and that we would have the ability to live righteous lives in light of your grace towards us and patience towards us and coming to know, Lord, that you are the good shepherd. Thank you, Lord, for your word. May it do its sanctifying work in all of our lives. Help us, grant to us the grace that we need, Lord, under our earthly masters, knowing who we ultimately serve. And may we do that with joy, Lord, as we display your grace because of the grace that you have shown to us. Be glorified this day, Lord, and then our next hour, open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, to receive the truth as your word goes forth. Be exalted, and it's in your name we pray.